please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1. And each week we provide an outline for the message. Those were available at the entry doors on the way into the auditorium. And for those who are watching on live stream, the outline button below or next to your media player will provide that for you. I've asked you to turn to the book of Ephesians because it contains the classic New Testament passage addressing the various family roles of husband, wife, children, and slaves. Now, you might assume, since it's Mother's Day, that I'll be focused on what it says about wives. But in fact, even though it's Mother's Day, I'm going to be focused on the men for a couple of reasons. One is, as you know, we are in a series in the book of Proverbs. And that contains that most famous passage in its last chapter about the virtuous woman. So if I were to speak to women today, with us being in the series of Proverbs, then chapter 31 in The Virtuous Woman is what we'd be doing. But secondly, as we'll see when we do look at Proverbs 31, it's a profile of a nearly perfect woman. And depending on how it's presented, women can come away from Mother's Day feeling really bad about themselves. So I'm going to address the men today, guys. But on Father's Day, ladies, be forewarned, <laughs> we'll look at the perfect woman from Proverbs 31. One other reason that it works to address we men on Mother's Day is that to whatever extent we listen and change for the better, that in fact is a great gift to our ladies on Mother's Day. So today from Ephesians, we're going to see what the Lord says to men. Let's bow together and ask Him to help us. Father, thank you for allowing us to be here, allowing us to praise you in song, worship you through giving, and now to open your word before us and to be instructed. Thank you for loving us and caring for us enough to give us the light of your word so that we do not need to grope in darkness about what you require of us, you have told us. Help us then to obey. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen. In your outline, first of all, I say that leadership requires submission. Leadership requires submission. Now that sentence, leadership requires submission, may seem strange since I think most of us associate submission only with non-leaders. Many think that there are only two kinds of people in terms of authority, those who have it, those who don't, those who lead and those who follow, those who command and those who obey. And unfortunately, this false understanding is what makes the call to leadership in Scripture attractive to many men. Many men say, hey, I'm in charge. I call the shots. You do what I say, woman. I'm the boss around here. But if we place the passage that Pastor Larry read earlier, from chapters 5 and 6 into the overall context of the book of Ephesians, we'll see that it is indeed the case that leaders submit. So I have chosen, for better or for worse, to do a survey of the first three chapters of Ephesians, and then to make application of what we learn there to the roles God has given us, husbands and wives, parents and children, employers and employees. So I ask you to bear with me then as I do. I've mentioned in the past that I had the great privilege of taking a class some years ago led by the late editor of the Journal of Biblical Counseling, David Paulison, 
And in that class, one of our assignments was to read a paper that he had written titled Council Ephesians. The premise of that paper is that the book of Ephesians really has everything you need to counsel anyone because it covers in six six chapters the full breadth of God's plan for us going back from before creation to the first coming of the Christ to deal with our sin problem, how we have that work applied to us, and then it tells us how we are to live in a profoundly new way. And biblical counselor Robert Kellerman agrees. And he says in his book on marriage counseling, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33, where it discusses marital roles and relationships, has to be the most often explored passage by biblical marriage counselors. That's true in my ministry, he says. Yet Paul, who wrote it, does not start Ephesians in chapter 5. So we should not start marriage counseling or our understanding of marriage in Ephesians 5, but rather in Ephesians 1 and following. You see, at the root of many of our relational problems, including in our marriages, is that we bring a self-centered mindset into those relationships. But Ephesians resets that from the very start by riveting our attention on God. That's why I've asked you to turn to chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. What we just read is the greatest single sentence ever written. We could really just pray and go home now because we've been amazingly blessed to have sung praise to God And to hear these profound and blessed words. But let's stay for a while longer and notice a few things. 
One, I said those words are the greatest single sentence ever because even though there are seven English sentences in those 12 verses, in the original Greek, it is one long, single, astounding sentence. So Paul, who wrote that and those verses, sets the context for everything that follows by starting with God the Father and His plan that was devised before anything was created. Before we or anything else were made, He chose us to be His. And before time, He purposed to do what was necessary to secure our salvation, our relationship with Him, including sending God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one He loves, to purchase with His blood our redemption and grant us forgiveness of sins. He planned all of this before anything was created, before anyone was born, before anyone had sinned. The plan extends from eternity past to eternity future when, as verse 10 says, the times reach their fulfillment and all things in heaven and on earth are brought under Christ. And he executed this eternal plan in time. God the Son did indeed arrive as planned in eternity past because the Bible says in Galatians 4, when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that He might receive, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Christ came and did the work that was planned before time, but God did not leave it unapplied. Rather, moving forward in time, we, if we belong to Christ, we were included when we heard the gospel and believed and were sealed at that moment by God the Holy Spirit as belonging to God, as owned by Him forever. And all of it, every last piece, is to the praise of His glory. That astounding sentence is followed by another sentence that reports Paul's thanksgiving to God for His grace. Verses 15 to 23 are another single sentence in Greek. The whole of chapter 1 is two sentences. And it's all about the praise of His glorious grace. So before we move on, let's do what Paul did. After he wrote that most amazing sentence ever written, he paused and thought about his gratitude to God. Let's bow again. Let's thank God for his grace. Father, we thank you for these absolutely stupendous words. We thank you that they are not mere words. They are truth from the true and living God. That before all things came to be, you were. 
And before you ever created your universe, you planned what would happen within it. And you determined in the counsels of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit that you would devise this plan and carry it out in time so that your character, your glory could be made known in full. Your love, your mercy, your grace. You created us in your image to reflect you back to you. We rebelled. We have all sinned. And as a result of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, your word tells us, that you had planned to redeem those that you have chosen to be part of your family. Lord, it's immensely humbling to read that we could have absolutely nothing to do with our salvation since it was planned before we were. It is you, it is your sovereignty, it is your grace, it is your love, it is your mercy. And it is all to the praise of your glorious grace. You call us now to live lives in light of that truth. Help me to do that. Help us to do that. Sober our minds, open our hearts today to hear what you say about what it means to obey the one who has done all of this for us. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen. God graciously initiated our salvation, and we responded to that initiation because He gave us the ability. Even though God's plan from eternity past is that we would be His and come to Him, in order for that to happen, He had to overcome the obstacle of our sin. And so chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature deserving of wrath. The Bible is saying we were spiritually dead with no way to pursue God or respond positively to God. Here's what the same Paul who wrote Ephesians says in Romans chapter 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, if we're left there, it's completely hopeless. But just as chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, is the most amazing sentence ever written, verse 4 of chapter 2 contains the most blessed two words ever written. Verse 4. But because of His great love for us, God. Now, I said two words. In Greek, the first two words of that sentence are but God. So you've got the first three verses. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You have no spiritual ability. None. Nada. If anything is going to happen for you spiritually, God is the one who's going to have to do it. And verse 4 then starts, 
but God. You were spiritually dead and hopeless, but God. Verse 4, but God, because of His great love for us, who is rich in mercy, made us alive even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. God breathed spiritual life into your spiritually dead body and you came alive. He resuscitated you and you responded to His call, believing, that is placing your faith in Jesus, so that verse 8 says famously, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, through believing. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. None of this is from us. It's all from God. The grace and the believing faith, they were all granted to us by Him, so He gets all the glory. Remember, we were chosen so that we would be to the praise of His glory. The summary of our individual salvation is in verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Our coming to the Lord is His work. He is the one who has made and is making us into who we are and are becoming. And he did so because in eternity past, he planned the work that we would do. When verse 10 says we are his handiwork, it's the Greek word poema. We get our English word poem from it. It's sometimes translated work of art. We are his work of art. This means, friend, that if you belong to Jesus Christ, then all of your life, every last bit of it, has been overseen by God from minute one of your existence because He planned His good work for you from eternity. Your life includes the good, the bad, and the ugly, but God redeems it all for this good purpose. God's people have never been adrift, never abandoned, never without meaning, even before we came to Christ, because in all of it, He was moving us where He prepared for us to arrive. In His arms, adopted into His family, as His child. Then chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, speak of the new community now that all of us are members of, that this grace of God in our lives creates in the church, Jews and Gentiles together, a testimony to God's grace that ethnicity is no barrier to brotherhood in the church. Chapter 3 ends the incredible panoramic view of prehistory and history and the future by speaking of this plan that's being carried out on earth as having cosmic effects in heaven and among the angels, and in all of it, you, as God's child, get to play a vital role. You. Me. This foundation to what Ephesians is going to teach in its last three chapters ends at the close of chapter 3 in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more 
than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now chapters, chapters 1 through 3 lay that astonishing foundation. Hear this before we're given a single command for what to do. Three chapters worth and you're not told a thing about what it is you're supposed to do. Before you're told what to do, before you're given a single corrective for what to change. And you know why? Because every relational disorder is first a worship disorder. Every relational disorder is first a worship disorder. You got to get worship right first. You got to get the vertical right first. And then and only then do you get the horizontal right. One author says, our worship disorder is the very heart act of refusing to have Jesus Christ as our heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight. If you're going to get your individual life right, if we're going to get your family relationships right, if you're going to get your roles right, you must first get your worship right. And that means you must first remember that this is God's world, you are God's child, and you're called to fulfill God's plan. And understanding that radically reorders what you live for and how you go about it. And it's only after these three mind-blowing chapters have set the stage then that it transitions to these last three chapters that tell us how to live in the light of them. And so chapter 4 and verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So Paul who writes this reminds the readers, I, Paul, am in prison. Ephesians is one of his, what we call prison letters, prison epistles. And so right at the very beginning when he starts to say, now in light of all of that, this is what you need to do, he says, I'm in prison and I urge you to live worthy of this calling that you've received. When he tells them he's in prison, he's saying in effect, listen, your circumstances do not determine your purpose. Your circumstances don't change your purpose. You may be in difficult circumstances, a difficult marriage, a difficult job, but your identity and blessed purpose remains, as does Paul's. Live a life then worthy. does not mean you are worthy of the Lord, or that you become worthy if you live a certain way. The Greek word axios is a term of measurement, of equal weight. It's saying that how we live should be an equal weight with the gracious calling we've received. One's calling and conduct should be in balance. Chapters 4 and 5 provide instruction for how we're to live, telling us, for example, to put off certain thinking and speaking and doing and put on forms of thought and speech and behavior that are in keeping with our calling. 
And many of you are familiar with the final chapter of Ephesians, chapter 6, where we're taught about the armor the Lord provides to wage the spiritual warfare in which we're engaged. That starts in chapter 6 and verse 10. But nestled between the teaching about how to live in chapters 4 and 5, spiritual warfare in chapter 6 is what Pastor Larry read earlier. Chapter 5 and verse 21 through 6, 9. It means that the way we live in the relationships given in that passage is, is like all of chapters 4 through 6. It's the outgrowth of our identity and our privileges and our blessings that are laid out in chapters 1 through 3. We are never supposed to try to live as the last three chapters tell us without attaching those last three chapters to the marvelous truths of the first three. Leadership requires submission. Now you say, I've got this outline, it's got a bunch of lines in it. How long are we going to be here? <laughs> Leadership requires submission to Christ in all relationships. Chapter 5 and verse 22 says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Verse 25 of chapter 5 says, Husbands, love your, wife, love your wives. These are particular callings of husband and wife, and in those particular callings, we have different roles in submission and loving leadership. This is where men get it wrong, because we see that the wife specifically commanded to submit to her husband, and the husband's nowhere told to submit to his wife, so there you have it. I'm the boss, do what I say, I call the shots around here. Ah, but not so fast, guys. First, the verse that begins this entire section of relationships of husbands, wives, parents, children, employers, employees, starts by saying, look at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that verse is the conclusion to what results from being filled with the Spirit in verse 18. If you're filled with the Spirit, the following verses, 19 to 21, say that you'll speak, you'll sing, you'll give thanks, and you'll submit accordingly. We'll talk about it, how it is that men submit to their wives in a bit. But, guys, I've just burst your bubble there. Submission ain't just for the ladies. But it gets worse, men. <laughs> At least if we thought God gave us the role of just throwing our weight around in our homes to our wives and our children. Because as David Pollison points out, when you think about the core of your identity, you are first and foremost a wife. <laughs> yep, we guys, wives. That is, you are part, one part, of the body of Christ in union with her one husband. In chapter 5, verses 25 to 32, it presents the church as the wife, the bride of Christ, and you're part of that. Whether you're male or female, married or single, you are wife to Jesus Christ, called to reverence Christ and to live subject to Him. And you are the subordinate in other relationships given in chapter 6, those of child and slave. When chapter 6 and verse 1 says, children, obey your parents, when chapter 6 and verse 5 says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. 
The servants often lived in the household and were part of it. So the full spectrum of domestic relationships is represented here. Husbands, wives, parents, children, master slaves, or for our setting, employers, employees. And at the core of who you are as a Christian, you're essentially child, beloved by the Father, chapter 1 and chapter 5 tell us. Whether you're a parent or a child, you are a child to God, called to obey and honor Him. And further, we are all essentially slaves to the Lord. Whether we are in authority or under authority in our workplace, we are slave to Christ, called to obey and to fear Him. You may be a guy, but you're a wife. You may have kids, but you're a child. You may have people answering to you, but you are a slave. Each of us is in our core identity in the Lord, meant to live as a subordinate. Leadership requires submission to Christ in all relationships and to the needs of those we lead. New Testament scholar Harold Honer, who wrote perhaps the definitive evangelical commentary on Ephesians, it's massive, said this, in each of these three relationships, wife, husband, child, parent, slave, master, the first partner is commanded to be submissive or obedient, the wives, children, slaves, but the second partner, husbands, parents, masters, is also to show submissiveness, by his care and concern for the first partner. Both partners are to act toward one another as a service rendered to the Lord. And we see this also, submission for we men and husbands. In what the Apostle Peter wrote about relationships between husbands and wives, Peter starts by talking about submission of citizens to government. In 1 Peter 2, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Okay, so citizens submit to the government, but then a few verses down it says, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. And then a few more verses down, it addresses wives, wives in the same way. Submit yourselves to your own husbands. Notice that I've emphasized the phrase in the same way. In the same way as what you've seen in chapter 2 about citizens submitting to the government, about employees submitting to employers in our, in our uh, setting. In the same way now, it goes on to talk about husbands and says this, husbands in the same way. Wives in the same way, but it includes husbands in the same way. Be considerate as you live with your wives. So in the same way that citizens submit and slaves to masters, wives to husbands, we men in the same way place ourselves under something. We submit to something. It's not leadership that we're submitting to in our homes. Rather, it's needs. If leadership requires submission, then men, and it does, then there are at least a couple of implications for us. First, if you're someone who cannot follow, then you're not fit to lead. All of us are first called to follow the Lord Jesus before we're ever called to lead anything. 
And if you're somebody who always has to be in charge, if you're somebody who says, and I've heard this from people over the years, I can't work for anybody else. That's a dangerous position, friends. You may not want to work for anybody else. I commend those of you who own your own businesses. I admire that. I mean that. But we should all have the submissive attitude that says, I can work wherever the Lord places me. I can submit myself because to others as I submit myself to the Lord. If you cannot follow, you're not fit to lead. Here's another implication. Our relationships are always Christ-referential. That is, they are based on our relationship with Him. And hear this, our success at obeying reflects on Him. And our failure at obeying misrepresents Him. He's the one who's placed you in these relationships. God's reputation is at stake. It's always, first and foremost, Christ-referential. So leadership requires submission, and, I say, it requires love. More quickly. Leadership requires love, meaning it does what is best. You've heard me many times give this working definition of love culled from the various passages in Scripture that teach on that subject, defining it this way. Love is doing what is in the best interest of another. Love is doing what is in the best interest of another. Now, best interest is always key to keeping us from being indulgent parents. You need to remember this. Many parents miss this. They think love means indulging. Love does not mean indulging. Love means giving what's in the best interest. Giving everything our children want is not in their best interest. In the case of our wives, men, we learn what's their best interest by getting to know them. We get to know their strengths and their weaknesses, and we seek to enhance the strengths and protect against the weaknesses. And Peter told us this in this passage I alluded to earlier. Husbands, in the same way, he says this, be considerate. As you live with your wives, treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. When he says, and I have it highlighted in bold there for you, be considerate. We use the word considerate to mean polite. That's a considerate person. That's not the way it's being used here. Rather, it's being used as thoughtful. Consider this. Think about this. Husbands, think about your wives. Be a student of your wives so that you can know them and provide what's best for them. Leadership requires love, so it does what is best, and, I say in the outline, it does what it wants. Leadership is to love, and out of that love, it does what it wants. You say, well, that sounds dangerous. If the person in leadership just does whatever they want, but hear this, our transformed hearts and what they want in our leadership has been radically reordered. It's no longer used for our position and using that position for ourselves. Again, David Paulison says this, a wife, child, and servant, which all of us are, who is also a husband, father, and master, particularly aims to love, provide, care for, nourish, cherish, value, bless, bring mercy, give grace, purify, build up, teach, and treat fairly. 
Thereby you do good to your own wife, your children, and the persons under you in the workplace. You particularly image Christ by looking out for the well-being of those God has placed within your care. Leaders are to model themselves on Christ's way of leading. All Christians are told to follow His example in chapter 5 and verse 2, pursuing a merciful, redemptive agenda toward all others. But his same example of self-giving is then particularly pressed upon husbands in chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. By implication, such attentive concern for those in one's care and charge is also pressed upon parents and managers, supervisors. Your interactions with your wife, your children, and workers should continually be shaped by crucial questions. How can I nourish, protect, care, and treat fairly the person God has placed under my care? How will I communicate by words, actions, and attitudes I'm looking out for his or her welfare? How am I unfair, self-serving, harsh, neglectful, irritating, discouraging, or domineering? Ephesians takes hold of you. If Christ loves you, love your wife. If your father nourishes you, nourish your children. If your master does you good, do good to those who serve you. Jesus said, the way his people lead is completely different than the way the world leads. In Mark chapter 10, he said to his first followers, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and gave his life as a ransom for many. Loving leadership does what it wants, but what it wants is the good, the good of those under his care. Ephesians has something to say to all of us, because all of us, no matter our particular demographic, married, single, children, no children, employee, manager, homemaker, we are all, no matter what, wife to Christ, child of God, slave of the Lord. Single adults sometimes wonder, why does Paul leave me out of Ephesians? He only focuses on the marrieds. But of course, unmarried people are not left out by this single adult himself, by the way, Paul who was sent out on a mission by another single adult, Jesus. If you're single, you are directly addressed in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 5 and verse 20, and then again in chapter 6 and verse 10 through the end of the book. And much of chapter 5, verses 21, 6 through 9 may apply as well. You are a wife. Though you do not have a calling as husband or wife, the background truths and specific exhortations will enrich your common call as a follower of Christ. You are a child. If you have living parents, you're addressed in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Obey your parents. Honor your parents. If you're a single parent, chapter 6 and verse 4 has your name on it. Rear them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You're a slave. If you're an employee, you're addressed in chapter 6, verses 5 through 8 regarding your supervisor, if you're the boss or you have other managerial and leadership responsibilities, chapter 6 and verse 9 applies to you. Hear this, this blessed book is God's word to every one of us, whatever station he has us in. 
Men today, in your take-home truth, understand that we are called to lead, yes, but lead like Jesus. And Ephesians tells us how that is done. It begins by this relationship with Jesus. Having believed, verse 13 of chapter 1 says, having believed in the gospel message, then you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to pray in just a moment, and you have the opportunity to express your belief, your faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done to receive that seal from the Holy Spirit, that you are God's possession, and for Him to begin His work from the inside out on you. So realize you're a sinner, like Ephesians chapter 2 describes. Recognize that Christ is the one who redeems by His blood on the cross. Your forgiveness of sin, past, present, and future is all due to that and only possible because of that. You repent. I've been living a selfish life. You are calling me, Lord, to a God-centered life. I'm going to go your way, not my way. We're going to bow in prayer. And when we do, friends, let's thank God for His amazing grace. Let's ask Him for His power to put it into practice in the relationships that He's placed us in. And those of you that have never come into God's family through Jesus Christ, this is your blessed opportunity to do so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this day and the fact that first and foremost, it is the Lord's day. And we remember that on the first day of the week, Sunday, you rose from the dead. And so we remember every Sunday when we come together to worship you, the reason we do it at this time on this day is because you are the living and reigning Lord. And Lord, because you are, then you tell us what life is about, why you have created, why you have made us, what you expect of us, what you have done for us in order for us to carry it out. Thank you for giving us your word that tells us who you are, why you have created, and what our role is within it. On this Mother's Day, may mothers be encouraged that they have this vital role to play in the plan, the eternal plan of God. May we men be encouraged and perhaps if need be, humbled by where you have placed us and the fact that we are to follow in the example of the Lord Jesus and not use our position for ourselves, but for those that you've called us to lead. Lord, as a result of this, may we in all of our circumstances please you, show you to those who look upon our lives. May they see something radically different in the way we go about the stations that you have placed us in. May you be glorified in the way we behave, and the way we talk. May others see that and come to you and bring glory to you as well. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand now for our closing song.